So Catherine said, it's a, it's a public lecture, so you know, sort of, yeah, keep it down, yeah, keep it fairly straightforward, just really drop in from people. So all of my friends who have far more expertise than I do and have worked with me on this for many years, either have to heckle or be very tolerant, okay? <laughs> I'll give you that now, particularly this man. <laughs> since, since, since he can probably claim many of the ideas were his to start with. But, uh, but we'll do that later. Um, the other thing is I did it in PowerPoint because um, I get so much hassle from people. This, this is an edited version of another presentation, so I apologise for it being in PowerPoint and corrupting the Open Data Institute with, uh, mm -hmm. with that particular file format. What can I say? Um, I'm a bad man. Um, so I wanted to talk a bit about what I'm up to, and I'll keep this as brief as I can so we do get time for lots of questions. But I work at the BBC, and I work in a bit of the BBC called Archive Development. And those of you who know me for many years will know that this is not where I really belong, it's just sort of where I ended up. That for about 15 years I was, I would say, unemployable. Um, tame geek, hack and pundit, writing and broadcasting and commenting and being involved in arts organisations. And then, you know, just over three years ago, my very good friend Tony Aggie phoned me up out of the blue and said, we've got a six-month contract to do some work around partnerships in the archive. Are you interested? And I thought, well, the recession's tank uh, hit, the economy's tanked, I'm a freelance journalist in a dying profession, I'll probably say yes, what was the job again? Um, you've all been there, I suspect. Uh, still there three years later, and discovered, much to my shock, that I was employable and could work within a large organisation, and even more to my shock, that the BBC was ready for what I was trying to say. That there was a real sense within the BBC that the, they wanted to engage properly with the capabilities and affordances of digital technologies and not just produce a fine website and stream television and radio. You know, and that there were already dozens, hundreds of people working within the BBC doing great work around things like linked data, around things like vocabularies and ontologies and metadata, not just within R&D, but within information and archives, a bit that looks after the archive, within future media. And their work hadn't quite bubbled up to either public consciousness or senior management consciousness, but it was absolutely happening. And so I found myself at the center of this amazing nexus of people who were doing brilliant work. And I took the job and I started talking about it. And I discovered that having taken the job, I'd go out and tell people what I was doing. And then they'd say, yeah, but can you get me old copies of Blake 7? <laughs> If they were intellectuals, they'd say, can you get me old copies of Charles Dickens? And whoever they were, they'd ask me if they could get tickets for Strictly Come Dancing. <laughs> because in everyone's imagination, the BBC's archive is block blockbuster on steroids before blockbuster went bust. It is this massive serigrank of tapes and DVDs. You go in there, you pull down a programme, and you watch it. And of course, it is. There are lots of serigranks of everything. But it is much, much more than that. And what I was asked to do... With my, with my colleagues was to think seriously about what is the most the BBC can get from its archive as we go forward. And some of the archive is that film. Some of it is documents, well, quite a lot. About 10 kilometres of files documents in the uh, Britain Archive Centre at Caversham. Um, God knows how many digi di um, digital by default uh, documents in the you know, word processing systems and stuff like that scattered around the, the system over the last 10 years. Masses of paper. Four million pieces of sheet music, six million photographs, largest vinyl record collection in the world, 
buildings, all sorts of stuff. Uh, and the question that, that we asked ourselves was, okay, so given the BBC has remembered all of this stuff in the 90 years of its existence, what can the BBC do with it? And crucially, what can the BBC as a royal corporation, this is the 1926 Charter, do with it? And I like the 1926 Charter because it says basically that the Postmaster General came to the King and said, look, people are listening to this radio stuff and it's starting to have an impact, we should nationalise it. And the King said yes. And in 1926 changed the British Broadcasting Company into the British Broadcasting Corporation to act as trustees for the national interest. <coughs> but the role of the BBC was to ensure that the new technology of radio broadcasting, of wireless, was developed in the national interest. And as far as I'm concerned, that's still the basis of the BBC. It is to say, what can this technology for communication at a distance do that benefits? And I would say, the interest of the world as a whole now, we don't have to be quite so parochial to say the national interest. For the last 50 years, the answer to that has been make television programmes. Because given you could do television over the radio <coughs> waves, it made sense to do that. Looking back at old issues of the Radio Times, I noticed until about 1965, the Radio Times was sound and television. Because radio wasn't called radio till then. Because radio is the medium used for sound and television. And it's only recently that we see radio as just being audio. So how do you take electromagnetic broadcasting over electromagnetic, electromagnetic waves and developing the national interest. The answer, until recently you make television programmes. Key question, in a world where I'm twittering every 30 seconds, where you're all on whatever social network you like, where we're all connected and hyper-connected, does that make sense? Is television still the best thing to do going forward? And crucially, is thinking about the archive just as a collection of television programmes the limit of our ambition? And I think the answer is no. I think that the BBC can now afford to think about its archive as a set of collections of material that can be used in a variety of ways. One of those splits, one way to think about it, is as the big video library. And that can be used to make money for education, whatever. Do you want a chair? I'll take that chair. Yeah, I'll take that chair. Very nice. Nice to see you. Um, one, of the, one of the things that can be done absolutely is you know, commercial or non-commercial distribution of whole programmes that people might want to watch. But if you think about the 500,000 hours of television the BBC has as an archive, that's a lot of still images at 24 frames a second. And if every still image has 100 or 200 points of interest in it, that's a really interesting data set. And if I want to be able to find every time there's a crested grebe flying left over a sunset on the west coast on the, in the BBC archive, I'm going to need some pretty good metadata. So that's my end point. How can we get from where we are now, where we have the programmes catalogued, where we have the archive, to that world, and how can we solve all the problems? And I think we need to do it because the BBC's non-digitised archive, just like every other non-digitised archive, runs the real danger of becoming invisible or irrelevant, of just going away. This is the Forum in Rome. It was once a very lively marketplace. If you go to my favourite building in the whole of Western Europe, Durham Cathedral. Anybody been to Durham Cathedral? It's fantastic, isn't it? Quiet, light, you know, the stones. Of course, that's not how it was built. 
when it was built, it was polychrome columns and it was full of life and activity and smoke and everything was happening in there. It was the centre of a vibrant community that wasn't just about worship, it was the home of the Prince Bishops as well. It's lost that meaning and that significance and has become just a record of it. Over the next five or ten years, the stuff that we don't get around to at least cataloguing properly and preferably digitising properly will become as interesting as that. It will have been lost to view. The kids who are coming through university now who can't find it in an online catalogue, who can't pull it up onto a screen, will not bother looking at it. The institutions that are built around access to those things will fade away. The British Library is working hard to reinvent itself for 2020, and its strategy is very much about how do we make all of our stuff available for research, for researchers and scholars and students in a way that they will find useful. And how do we not give in to the world in which if it's not on the first page of Google, then it doesn't exist? How do we do this properly around linked open data to ensure that it's not just the popularity competition of keywords and SEO effectiveness that determines what people see? How do we make sure that it's grounded in these principles? And that transition is, I think, as important, if not more important, than the transition to movable type. In my more histrionic moments, this is not one of them, it's a wet, damp day in March, I'd argue that this transition is as important as the invention of literacy in the first place. That the shift that's going to happen to the way we engage with the world and the ways we construct reality from the sense data we, were gi we are given is about to be transformed as much as learning to do reading and writing in the first place did 5,000 years ago. But we can talk about that later. Crucially, in this age of electronics where the real world doesn't go away, where we still remain physical beings embodied in that world, but are capable of engaging with each other through electronic devices in an unprecedented way, where the, 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 the smartphone that John's just picked up is capable just by him typing in a ten-digit number of reaching out and talking to four billion people. Over two-thirds of the world's population are at the end of an invisible line tethered to that piece of hardware. That's just an astonishing achievement. So, and in that world, how do we cope? So that's the setup. Okay? If this was a magic trick, that's the point at which there's somebody standing there waiting to be sawed in half. Okay? So I'm now going to do the sawing in, sawing in half bit. I won't ask for a volunteer. The answer is encapsulated in this fantastic picture created by my esteemed friend and colleague Mo McRoberts, also known as Navali on the Twitters, the one with the blue hair. This is the digital public space. I can only use this image in England with people of a certain age. Really. <laughs> <laughs> but if you know it, then you know it. The digital public space isn't a product or a service it's not a thing that we're trying to build or anyone's trying to build. It's an arrangement of shared technologies and standards and processes that can be collaboratively developed and delivered and will lie behind a whole range of propositions, services, activities, projects, philosophies. And the core idea of the digital public space is the one of building on a partnership between institutions and organisations and individuals who share a set of common problems. And those common problems are, what do we do? As we digitise the history, digitise all the world's culture, and as we create new material in either digital or digitally described forms. 
when everything we might want is either born digital, can be adequately digitised by scanning, if it's, uh, say, an old VHS, or can have an adequate digital representation, say, a 3D mesh of a solid object, what systems do we need in place, what principles do we need in place to make that workable and to allow us all to get the benefits from it? It leads you to some very big questions very quickly. And they are the obvious questions. I don't think anybody would be surprised by these. What do you do about digitization standards? How do you cope with the fact that the way in which you digitize something today will be superseded by new technologies, but you may want, you may want to keep that asset and just know how to play it? What architectures do you need in place to support all of those different systems? How do you pay for it? If you're the BBC, crucially, how do you comply it? How do you make sure that what you do with the digitized assets doesn't compromise the BBC's duty of care to contributors? Here's my basic working sort of Gedanken experiment about this. Just suppose that 30 years ago, 40 years ago when I was young, I was involved in a car crash and my best friend died. And it was really bad, it was horrible. And it was on the television. And there's some footage of, you know, crashed car and me being taken away led into an ambulance and it's got my name at the bottom in the subtitle. I'm sobbing and I'm happy but I've got over it. I've coped. I've managed. I've built my life up again. I'm okay. And then the BBC in its infinite wisdom decides to digitise this entire news archive because hey that's a fantastic idea. The public value of that is enormous. It's obviously enormous. And because we're quite clever we decide to OCR all of the text as well. Because hey who wouldn't? And so suddenly one day next year Every search for me, the first thing you come across is that video clip of me, age 12, being led away. And it just you know, completely undoes all the work that I've been doing in my head for the last 40 years. Is that legitimate? And if it's not legitimate, how do we control it? What are the, I've had no answer to this question. But it's one that comes up in conversations with the BBC because developing a service in the national interest also means taking care of everybody. It means looking out for them. It means not just acting in the way that some commercial organisations do to say, well, meh, you know, you don't like it, fine, opt out. Because it's very hard to opt out of the news cycle. And it's very, very, very hard to have opted out of the news cycle 40 years ago when you couldn't possibly have predicted that this might have happened. So you can make the argument that anything captured from today, fine, you understand the world you're working in. But the past, what do you do with that? So we're left with all of these questions and we're left with a vast amount of equipment and film and devices and technology to work with to try to build something that, with our partners, will deliver on some of these aspirations. And it's absolutely, for the BBC, about a partnership initiative. It's about sharing the problems with many other organisations, figuring out which bits the BBC, as an engineering organisation, can contribute, and which things will benefit the BBC's own interests? Absolutely. You know, it's not entirely selfless. But looking at what the commonalities are. So talking to the Open Data Institute is really important because these guys know a lot more about what might be done in that broader world than the BBC can with its, not tunnel vision, but its, its focus on audiovisual archives. We work closely with the British Library, with Arts Council England, with the Library of Scotland, with... Europeana, we're talking to the Digital Public Library of America. Frankly, you know, I'll talk to anybody. Um, my, my, my colleague Jake Berger has a slide which says, you know, 
what next? And it's a photo of me. It says, fancy a coffee? <laughs> that's basically his strategy for where to take things next, which is coffee with Bill. Okay, so that, that and of course the offer holds for all of you. Um, I live on coffee, so you know, buy me a coffee, you can basically have my time. <laughs> and what we want to do, I, I was trying to sum it up, and I'm just going to read this bit out because I think I've actually expressed it quite well. So the BBC wants to do the following things. We want to make it easy for anyone to find anything. Right? That's first, because if you can't find it, it might as well not exist. We want to make it easy for anyone to know, without too much effort or ambiguity, what they're allowed to do with the things they find. They need to know what the limits are, and they might be quite harsh limits. Fine, we'll solve that problem down the line. Third, we want to make it easy for anyone to share what they have found and the things they've done with what they've found with other people. So you should be able to know what you can do with the stuff and, know, and be able, quite easily, to share it. And fourth and crucially, we want everyone to have confidence in the integrity and good faith of the institutions and companies that help them do this. And that last one really matters, because there are services out there that will help you find stuff. And there are places out there you can go and get stuff. And there are places out there to help you share the things that you've done with the things you've, stuck, you've found. But you can't necessarily trust them. And the BBC still has a wealth of public trust. And we think we can build on that and use that to help other organisations do the right thing, as far as we're concerned. They may decide not to. Just as we can learn from other people's metadata schemas and other people's digitisation approaches and other archives approaches to the classifications and ontologies, all those things. So one of the things the BBC brings to the party is that we will not betray the public trust because we have a signed vellum charter by the Queen saying she'll break our legs if we do. You know, it's really good. And that strength, that does give you strength. It gives you a principled position that people can't argue with. People sometimes ask me in uh, agreements if, they, if there can be an indemnity for the BBC. And I point out that the you know, BBC doesn't do indemnities. And they think, ah, oh, that's just Bill being awkward. I say, no, we see, because we're a, royal, a corporation incorporated by Royal Charter, um, the ultimate liability of the BBC is the Kingdom of the United Kingdom. You know, so we can't put that on the line. I'm sorry, we're just not allowed to. And they tend to back off at that point, so that's fine. Yeah. So you, know, you win that argument. So that's sort of the background to what we've been trying to achieve. And then we've actually done some things on the ground that we believe demonstrate these principles. So one of the first things we did was this. It's a system called Chronicle. We took 500 hours of BBC news footage from Northern Ireland in the 60s and 70s and digitised it with assistance and support from JISC, the um, university's IT group, and the British University's Film and Video Council. We've put it into a closed system. You have to have a username and password. It's not public and open where scholars and researchers can use it for research and for teaching purposes, so they can make it available to their students. And they can look through this stuff, and they can pull out clips, and they can make them available, and they can discuss them. And this is, many, much of this stuff was never broadcast. It is the raw footage shot at events by BBC ca uh, camera crews. What we're getting back from that... Why did that happen? Here, excuse me. That was just magic, wasn't it? Well, we're getting back from that. Thank you. What well, we're getting back from this is metadata. Yeah. Who are these people? What was this event? Which building is that? What architectural style is that wallpaper? Whatever you might want. 
which we would not otherwise have. And that feeds back into the BBC, where we can use that internally to improve the quality of programme research. So it's a really good contained project that has been sort of making a difference. It's not public because the material we're still, you know, is internal BBC material, so we, we don't have necessarily have rights or permission to give it away yet, but it demonstrates a framework and an approach that we can then apply to material which could be made publicly available. And crowdsourcing the metadata for the BBC's collection would be a brilliant idea. What I'd ideally like to see is something like a smartphone app where when you're standing on the um, railway platform, you can just look through and you know those trillion stills I mentioned of all 500,000 hours of footage? It sends you a random still and says, do you know who this is? Is there anything interesting in this picture? And if you're bored, you, instead of reading the newspapers or Twitter, you just sort of add some data in and send it back to us. And eventually we could classify the whole archive. That's a bit of an ambitious project. In terms of collaboration, I know. OK, that's better. Um, another thing we did was, was this. This is a, a front end built for us by Meta Broadcast to a data, a data aggregator. So we took a whole load of collections from a number of organisations that were willing to work with us, like the Royal Opera House, Kew Gardens, the plants in Kew Gardens, obviously Wikipedia's in there as well, uh, National Library of Scotland, um, the British Library, a whole load of other organisations. And they just gave us a whole load of their data, and we massaged it, well, Mo and his team massaged it, into a data aggregator, that allows you then to put a front end on the top of it that lets you search and navigate these different collections seamlessly. So it's, if you like, a very alpha of what a digital public space browser might look like. And this was an attempt to demonstrate that you don't need to build a single overarching ontology. You don't need to stress too much about making all the metadata schemata work together as long as you can do enough, as long as it can be good enough, that you can identify same as relationships, that you can work with it. And what we're using this for is say, okay, so if somebody else gives us some, some data, would that work with this as well? So it's a proof of principle that you can integrate data sets from very, very disparate institutions and organizations and put a front end on them that allows you to navigate between them. And at the moment, it's, it's working if a bit broken, because it was never intended, it's not public facing. It's absolutely a, a toy that we're playing with to see how far we can go before we break it. Working with Arts Council England, last year we launched the Space. And on the surface, the Space is a digital art service. So Arts Council England commissioned several million pounds worth of art from 53 different organisations, and the Space was the place it was put. But behind the scenes, the Space was an engineering prototype. It was an attempt to build a, a, a cloud-based, content distribution system off the BBC's infrastructure with a consistent metadata schema that we imposed this time to see whether different sorts of digital art could be sucked into it, categorised, whether you could put a user interface on the top of it and then get it onto every screen. And it was very successful, A, in terms of just delivering some really nice stuff like the Globe to Globe plays, like a project called The Listening Project, which was a sonification of Twitter, a, a whole variety of different things which I thoroughly recommend to you but also in showing how hard that is, but you can actually go a long way down the path just with bolting together some off-the-shelf stuff, building some systems yourself to link it together. And so we learned an enormous amount from the space, and we're now feeding that into the next iteration, which currently glories in the name, I can reveal, The Space 2. <laughs> <laughs> that one may not stick, you never know. Um, might just end up being The Space. Um, but 
we're, the next iteration of the space, which will come out at some point, you know, we're basically tearing the whole thing down and starting from scratch in terms of the platform because we now know a lot more what to do. And again, sharing the information about what, what we learned. And then we're currently in the midst of a very, very early stages of a project with JISC again called RES, <laughs> the Research and Education in Space. You can see how early this project is. All I've got to show you is the front page of the half-written document that is the technical approach. But it's such a nice font, I thought I'd share it with you. Anyway, and the, the, again, the surface aim of RES is to say educational institutions have the right to access quite a lot of off-air recordings under the 1988 Copyright Act. There's an institution called the Education Recordings Agency, which means off-air recordings can be used for educational purposes. But at the moment, their ability to take advantage of that freedom is limited by a number of technological constraints can we, the BBC, get around those constraints and make as much as possible of the BBC's archive that is already available to them, easily available? So it's not about building a front end, it's not about building a service, it's saying given that organisations are allowed to do this, can we help them do it better? And JISC, <coughs> through the British University's Film and Video Council, will then deliver a front end service on the back of that capabilities and any other organisation that has the rights under the ERA framework, the Education Recording Agency framework, will be able to use it. And a big part of that is to build a system which allows the BBC's material to be surfaced in a way that has descriptions and ontologies around it that will integrate seamlessly with other collections and other catalogues. So we'll be sharing all of the work we do on this in terms of data modelling quite widely with the community to ensure that other people can tap into it. Because that means if you're building a proposition, if you're building a tool that's going to be used in universities, you can then seamlessly link into the BBC assets that those university students already have access to, instead of having to go and source them independently yourself. So it starts to just, to say, deliver on some of those things. And then with the compulsory first Doctor Who reference of the talk, because it's in my BBC contract, <laughs> It's all a lot bigger on the, on the inside. As in, the, the, the things that are publicly visible are quite small scale, but beneath them there's a lot of very, very fast paddling going on, and we are very, very happy to share that with you. The BBC sometimes finds it hard to be open, sometimes finds it hard to understand the real implications of open, and sometimes has real difficulties in being open because it will conflict with things we have to do elsewhere. We want to be, and we are drawn to it. If you look at BBC R&D, um, their, their GitHub repository has the source code and material from many of their projects. Right? The space code, much of that is being made available. We want to move forward in that light as much as we can as a public body that has other requirements as well. But crucially, if people are to be able to find everything and then ask for it, it needs to be based around the core principles of open data and linked data that we all understand so well. And so that's got to underpin what we're doing. And crucially also, we as the BBC do not want to stamp on what anyone else is doing. This is my niece being threatened by a 1960s Dalek, okay? See, family, I will protect her. Similarly, the BBC sometimes has a habit of doing partnerships to people and not with them. And what we're trying to do is avoid that happening here. That this is not a case of we're going to invent <coughs> something great and you can all sign up for it is we believe there's this great collaborative enterprise going on. The thing we call the digital public space is one facet of that, 
world of open data is another, open knowledge is another. All of these things will move forward together. And the role of the BBC is to have convening power, BBC is very good at bringing people together, to have engineering weight, you know, we have thousands of engineers, we can actually do some of the heavy lifting, and to have at the heart of it the public interest. That the things we do, we do to benefit everyone equally. And sometimes that can be very useful in a project because it helps steer its direction. Many of you will have heard me say this before, but my favourite city in the world is Venice. And if you go to Venice and you look at Salute on the Dogana, what you may not know is it's built on about a million wooden piles. Because Venice is very, very swampy. If you're going to build a massive palace, the first thing you do is you hammer a million pieces of wood into the swamp. When it comes to the digital public space, we are hammering logs into the swamp at the moment. But those logs will not rot because we're in anaerobic conditions. <laughs> and pretty soon, we'll be putting down some layers of Istrian stone and brickwork, and then the marble facades will go up, and they will be glorious. And 